Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Kaki, right now, you can read her bio, but what's missing there is she is currently the director of uh, shelter and outreach for that city of San Francisco and that county of San Francisco. So I think she might be knowing of what she speaks. So, Kaki. Good morning. Good morning. That's pretty good. Um, so I'm humbled and honored to be here today. I really want to um, just say that uh, the song was really inspiring. Um, you know, there's a storm coming, and don't try and run from the storm. And the first uh, hymn that was sung about, you know, the roots holding me tight to this mission that I'm on for justice and my wings setting me free and, um, you know, hearing sort of the message about this community, folks gathering together with the intention to um, help each other on a journey of enlightenment and seeking to make a difference in the community and be of service. Um, I'm deeply honored and moved by your commitment. And um, I want to speak today from that place of being honored about who you are and why you've come together and your commitment in doing this work. And specifically today about um, our positionality inside of a system, a system that I call racism. And, um, and I wanna say that um, I'm gonna invite you today to regardless of where you're on in your own personal journey of um, understanding your position in this, this country that we live in and um, your position in terms of maybe having access to benefits that uh, were unearned benefits that have to do with wherever you might find yourself in the positionality of this system we're all swimming inside of. I want to um, invite you today to take another step. I want to invite you today to um, be willing to be uncomfortable, to start to find places where you can identify things that um, might be just out of reach to you. And I want to suggest that when you find yourself in a place where an idea or a concept just isn't available to you and it might just be a little out of reach and you might be um, thrown or called to maybe discount or rationalize uh, how your positionality in that moment, I want to invite you just to hold silence, you know, for yourself and for the thoughts that you might have and to really just be able to be uncomfortable and, and take moments or weeks or even months to reflect and seek other sources of information, whether it be through the internet or through a book, um, and to really explore a thought that's out of your reach, right? Because as white folks, sometimes 
or if people and positionalities of benefits, there might be things that we just can't quite conceive of, right? And that might be what I'd like to create today is actually the possibility of us starting to conceive of things that are out of our realm of conceptualization so that we can take another step a little bit further in, in our own journeys for that justice, for that enlightenment, to be of service in the community that you have all so clearly committed yourselves to. So um, it's my invitation. I know you guys sometimes do a dialogue. I'm not gonna do that today. Um, the work that uh, I'm gonna touch on today is work that uh, often is a three-day process. Um, I'm gonna kind of take the first piece of it that usually I take about eight hours to <laughs> work with folks on. Um, and, and I'm gonna suggest that what you're gonna be left with today is really something that um, deserves to be a lifetime journey and that you, you take, you be gentle with yourself in terms of sitting with it and examining it and, and looking at where the places are that there's action for you to take and that, that that may or may not be that today is the day you need to be into dialogue about it. Um, so what I'm gonna start with, and let me get my little timer out, um, because I know this is gonna be interesting. So what I'm gonna start with, uh, there's a packet I have on your, um, it's not on everybody's table, but I'm leaving it with you. I didn't know how many people would be here, but you're welcome to pass it around. I'm not gonna read every page, but this packet is a list of um, acts and laws that um, happened on this particular geographic uh, continent between about, um, the 1600 and uh, the 1800s. And the reason why I brought this packet today is, um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you one more thing, I have one point today. Um, and so, you know, my very good friend says, she, best advice a speaker ever gave her, you're gonna talk for five minutes, have one point. You're gonna talk for 10 minutes, have one point. You're gonna talk for an hour, have one point. So I'm gonna tell you my one point. My one point is, is that racism is a system. Um, I'm racist. I am a, I am a person that I, I, I know I look white. I know people see me as white. I know that I have white privilege. I'm swimming inside of the system. I was raised inside of it. I turned on the TV. I saw people that looked like me. I, magazines, you know. Um, I had a life that I made all kinds of mistakes. They were real easy for me to clean up when I was ready to clean up and play the game of how white folks act. And things became available to me and degrees and jobs and all kinds of stuff. Um, it's clear to me throughout my life once I started paying attention to the impact of um, the world on other people that didn't look like me that other folks didn't have access to that. Today I work in a city and county of San Francisco, 40% of the population of homeless folks are black. The regular percentage of population of black folks in the city and county of San Francisco is 4%. Um, I could go on at nauseum, uh, whether it's education, incarceration, foster care, um, et cetera. It's not specific to San Francisco, it's all over the country. Um, police violence, people being shot that are unarmed, women being imprisoned uh, from domestic violence situations, the amount of, you know, it just, I could go on and on and on, and please take time to look at those things if they're unfamiliar to you. There's plenty of websites that'll tell you about all the disparities and how 
color is the most defining feature that is an indicator of someone's ability to achieve specific outcomes. At any rate, my one point is racism is a system. And whether you're racist or, or not racist is a spectrum. On the one end, we have people who are explicitly racist and are out there preaching their rhetoric. On the other hand, you have people who are living their lives, recognizing their place in that system and the occurrences and dismantling it. Somewhere in the middle, you have folks that are like colorblind. You guys know those people? I don't see color. Everyone's the same. We're all equal. And that's like kind of in the middle of that spectrum, right? So I think that this is a journey for folks about recognizing their place in that system and identifying where they are on that spectrum. And then doing the work that inspires them to be at one wherever they want to be on that spectrum. It's about one point. I'm going to try and come back to it a couple times. In order to, uh, in order to illustrate this, this system, I have this, this packet here. I'm not going to go through it right now, but the packet basically documents the creation of white. So bottom line is in the 1600s, people came to this country, white and black folks were enslaved. They all had equal access to stuff and things and freedom, to working off their indentured servitude and to getting land and to marrying folks and to being able to do all kinds of things. White and black indentured servants had the same access. As we progressed, certain things started to happen. One of the things was uh, when we got here, we had this law where um, if you had children, the child followed the condition of the father. Well, there was a black slave that was born to uh, a white uh, you know, father and black mother, and she was named Christian at birth, and she fought for her freedom based on that law, and she won. After that, plenty of other black folks started fighting and winning. And so what do you suppose they did? They changed the law. And they changed the law to say that the child follows the condition of the mother. What do you suppose that did? Well, that allowed people who were white to be able to uh, multiply as much as they did with the folks that they had working for them and for those folks that that woman birthed to become slaves. Um, there are other laws that continued in that, uh, anti-miscegenation laws that generally, originally in the 1600s, talked about Christians and Europeans marrying black folks and slaves. Orig originally, it wasn't about whiteness, but something happened around 1682 when blacks and freed whites started to align together and rebel against the colonies, and the elite, the 1%, said, we have to stop this, we have to stop the alliance between poor folks that are black and white, and how are we going to do that? We're going to use this word whiteness, and we're going to codify it in law, and we're going to give access and freedoms to the white folks that are indentured slaves that we don't give to black folks. And this was the first creation of the identification of whiteness, and it, and it created what is called um, the possessive investment in whiteness. And there's a book about that if you want to get it by a guy named George Lipschitz, and I recommend checking that out. So this goes on, and laws become uh, more frequently using the word white, giving benefits to people who are white indentured servants, such as getting their freedom, punishing whites for colluding with slaves, um, casual killing law, allowing for 
folks who are uh, mastering slaves to be able to kill their black uh, slaves and not to white slaves. And by the time we uh, become a country and we seek our freedom, it gets codified in the Constitution. The whiteness and the access to representation in the court of law, the access to the ability to achieve capitalism, the access to treating black folks as chattel, as animals, as property, as real estate, the rapeability of black women is codified in law, and this goes on. So this is the, this is the context that our country was created inside of. It's not a context I was taught in school. This isn't a whole lot of pages right here. It's pretty big print. I'm pretty sure they could have gotten away with this in four pages of a history book. But who gets to tell the story, right? And when you look at that spectrum, right, it's like, where do we fit on the spectrum? Like, are we okay with that's not in the history books? Where does that place us on the spectrum? These aren't hard things to find out, right? Have we, do we have send our kids to school and they're not being taught this kind of stuff, yet it's the history of this country? Where does that place us on the spectrum? These are the kind of questions I ask myself. I'm racist. I know I'm racist. I'm inside. I'm swimming inside of racism. I was, I was socialized. I was brought up inside of it. What am I doing with it? So according to uh, the philosopher John Rawls, justice is the basic structure of a society. John Rawls is the guy who uh, contributed a lot to what we call social contract theory. The idea that we're all gonna come together and we're gonna give up a little bit of what we have because it's gonna make it better for us all together, right? When he talks about that structure, he talks about the theory of justice and he states that institutions operate on the principle that free and rational persons concerned to further their own interests would accept an initial pitch position of equality as defining the fundamental terms of their association. Yet we know that in our contemporary society, these systems have been engineered to explicitly deny folks that are not white from access to education, employment, voting, uh, and representation in the court of law, and so on and so forth. It was institutionalized in the U.S. Constitution. It was carried out in the antebellum era of slavery and the Jim Crow separate but not equal laws. By the 70s, policies excluding black Americans from equal opportunities in housing combined with policies in the 80s to create uh, infrastructure only for places that had tax base, combined with, by the 90s, uh, anti-poverty and anti-welfare laws that intuitively one might see at this point are specifically targeting people of color living in inner cities that didn't have access to uh, all of the opportunities that were made up for white folks that came into this country. Now, how do you suppose that impacts people that come into this country that don't identify as white or black? What do you think when the 1800s, when the Japanese started to arrive to this country, who do you think, what system do you think they wanted to identify with? Not to mention the genocide and all that was done to the American Indians. I think that they probably had the worst deal ever dealt to anyone. But what I really want to focus on today is the anti-blackness that is created through the systems that we live inside of and that gets handed down to us at every step of our education and our development and access to any type of system in, in, in our country that we live inside of. And that this anti-blackness is really at the heart of people either wanting to create their alliance or assimilation with a system and a framework of white normativity that sets up our expectations for what's a reasonable way to act 
What's an acceptable way to speak? How should you present yourself in a professional environment? And so many other things. I could go on. As I said, it's an eight-hour thing usually. <laughs> so um, without going through all the stuff I have in here about the statistics, which um, I think are uh, something that you should really take a look at, um, I will mention one. You know, there um, felon disenfranchisement. You know, right after we gave black folks the right to vote, uh, you know, out of all the states in the world, there were like six that had felon disenfranchisement laws that were really initially about um, when we were in civil war, making it so that folks that were trying to uh, commit tyranny and or uh, treason rather were not able to access the the uh, to uh, uh, dilute or uh, uh, the the polity. I think is the word. But um, once we said black folks could vote within a year and a half, 75% uh, of the states in this country had uh, disenfranchisement laws. And we were, we were uh, starting to exponentially incarcerate uh, black folks with felonies all around the country for things like loitering or being in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and whatnot, which um, has only increased. So at this point in our country, there's six million people that can't vote because of a varying variety of felon disenfranchisement laws throughout the entire country. And in five states in our country, as many as 25% of the African-American population cannot access voting because of felon disenfranchisement. Just one, one thing, just one fact. So this continues to this day. So what does it have to do with us today? And what are we, and what are we seeking? And what are we here for? Let me see if I can find a point in these notes where I get to that. Um, so it's clear that we evaluate, when we evaluate the Rawls's theory, right, that we have a lot to do. Um, I want to call a. Um, a woman, Iris Marion Young, there's a book she writes called Responsibility for Justice. Um, Iris Marion Young um, talks about a concept of justice that she calls social connection model. So um, I, I think that those of us with unearned privileges due to our position in that structure of that dominant culture have personal responsibility for envisioning and realizing a just and equitable world. I reckon you guys are all with me on that. The question is, what does that mean? How do we do it, right? And I want to suggest that we get really hung up. I want to suggest writing on the coattails of Iris Marion Young and actually writing on the coattails of Robin D'Angelo, and I recommend both of those people to you, that we get really caught up in, in finding a bad actor. I want to suggest that the civil rights era, what it did for us is it really gave us this idea that somebody who's racist is an individual, is an individual actor that doesn't like people of color, they're conscious of it, right? And that they have intent to do harm, to keep something from or literally exclude a person of color. And that we, after that era, after that civil rights era, started thinking that's what a racist person is, right? And it stopped us from interrogating the systems that we were inside of. I want, to, I want to suggest that that does us a disservice. I want to suggest that that puts us in a place where we're living in guilt and shame around our actions and our place. 
And it really provokes a possibility when racism or race comes into the communication or onto the table, we look to defend our moral character. I want to suggest that that is not of service to us. I want to invite you into a place where you consider that we are racist. And that is not something that, that defines us as bad people. It is not something that is an indictment on our moral character. Rather, it is an indictment on our moral character to deny that we live inside of a system that based on our positionality in that, we are called to be racist. We're called to be racist because it's, it's comfortable. The, situ the system is set up to grant us privileges, to grant us access to things that, that allows me to be comfortable, to be, to be at ease to be able to access things easier. So I'm not set up in a way, right, where it's gonna be common for me to see these things and question these things, they don't occur to me. And oftentimes in our circles, we are really attached to being comfortable in our conversations and we actually exclude folks of color from even having these conversations with us because we're really not interested in being in that place of discomfort. I know some of you have read the book White Fragility recently. And I want to acknowledge you for doing that work. And what does it mean to move past that? So Iris Marion Young talks about the social connection model. She finds that all those that contribute their actions to structural processes with some unjust outcomes share the responsibility for injustice. This responsibility is not, now she recommends that this responsibility is not backwards looking. Being responsible in relation to structural injustice means that one has an obligation to join with others who share that responsibility in order to transform the structural processes to make their outcomes less unjust. Now I know that here in McMinnville there have been a number of opportunities within the last year or so. I see people amongst us that have traveled to cross borders to stand next to folks that are trying to live a life free of violence and, and murder based on US policy, foreign policy, and other countries that have has created um, war-torn environments for children and lack of access to all the things that we take for granted. I know that a lot of you have shown up out at Sheridan and stood with folks that were being held uh, there that were separated from their children. And, and these are the types of things, right? These are the types of things that we can do. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's cold and raining. Um, I myself have had recently experience with, uh, in the place where I work, uh, there's a DEI committee that wanted to do a day-long retreat uh, was be, being this like mandatory thing. I'm like at the director level. Um, I'm new. And it didn't seem to me at all weird when the uh, folks in my director's circle asked me for advice about that day. It didn't seem at all weird to me to tell them how it ought to be done. It didn't seem at all weird to them to defer to me about a very big decision I was making. The decision was whether or not the retreat should be mandatory or not. 
and I well-intentioned and came from all types of, you know, experience, and I worked at the Office of Equity and Inclusion in the city of Portland, and I'm part of the Government Accountability for Racial Equity work group, and I've read all these books, and I got a master's in public policy. Didn't occur to me as weird to say, it ought to be this and not that. I'll tell you what, those people on the DEI committee that were people of color that had been working on that retreat for uh, a year, it seemed weird to them. <laughs> and it was an example of white supremacy, right? It was an example of white normativity. We defer to the degrees, to the, the expertise that comes from the academy. Which academy? The same academy that didn't tell me about this, right? And that's white normativity, and that's the power of it. And it's pervasive, and it's all around us. So I want to suggest that the idea that we're bad people causes us to want to defend our moral character, but our bias is unconscious. Our bias is not something that lives in the realm of, I know I'm doing it. So that idea that a racist person is somebody who is an individual that's conscious of it and that has implicit intent, that is not helpful because the difference that we're going to make rests in our willingness and our ability to really interrogate our unconscious bias. Your brain is processing, and, and I might get, it might be like 40 million instead of four, but it's millions of pieces of information every second. And it's only capable of tallying 40 of them. And you're only capable of remembering three. <laughs> so every second, everything I see, I categorize it, I put it into, I put it, I'm not even thinking about this. And I have preferences. Somebody came up here earlier with a wallet chain on. I was like, that's my people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> same, same. Right. So, we all live inside of these systems. We all have some privilege. We have some responsibility for that. What do we do? I want to leave you with um, a couple things in your spiritual circles. There's a uh, blog that uh, a woman that I follow um, wrote recently about um, spiritual bypassing kind of about the whitewashing of spirituality, right? That takes place when people are really want to be in this space of like, um, you know, I'm a spiritual being and so love and my spirituality trumps racism. And I, and I want to invite you to, to think about who's in the room today. And I want to invite you to think about the racial composition of the community that you live inside of. And I want you to think about the demographics of the age of the people that are in the room. And I want you to think about the demographics of the age of those people that live inside your community. And I want you to ask yourself, why aren't they here? I want you to think about that. So this woman suggests that spiritual bypassing is a very persistent shadow of spirituality manifesting in many ways, often without being acknowledged as such. Aspects of spirituality, spiritual bypassing include exaggerated attachment, emotional numbing and repression, overemphasis on the positive, anger, phobia, blind or overly tolerant compassion, weak or too porous of boundaries, 
Lopsided development, cognitive intelligence often being far ahead of emotional or moral intelligence. Debilitating judgment about one's negativity or shadow elements, devaluating of the personal, relative to the spiritual, and delusions of having arrived at a higher level of being. <laughs> that was for my mom, mostly. <laughs> <clears throat> She said, don't make them uncomfortable. <laughs> so I was committed to making you uncomfortable today. Um, so I want to suggest that um, this is a journey, that it's a lot of work, that it's not going to take place in a 20-minute conversation. I want to suggest that um, the opportunity for you to unpack and discover your own personal responsibility for justice literally lies in the spaces where you're willing to be uncomfortable. I want to suggest that our place in the system of racism allows us access to a level of comfort that's hard to surrender in order to do the work that we need to do. I want to suggest that every day there's an opportunity for you to look at something that you allow yourself to not look at because it's unconscious and it's not a choice that you're making. I want to suggest that unpacking that is going to be work. It's going to be a daily commitment. It's going to be about every moment that you're in being willing to invite people into your circle, invite people into your home, think about who your friends are, who you have over for dinner, who shares space with your kids at school, who's not in that school, what is it that you have responsibility in doing to create access to other folks, to the opportunity structures that you have. There's no one thing. But our willingness to be present and interrogating our own unconscious bias, our willingness to interrogate the systems that we're inside of and our position in those, that's what makes the difference of where we lie on that spectrum. Because racism is a system. It's a system that's very particular to this country, that's built on a legacy of anti-blackness that was created by the social construction of white. And to whatever extent we're willing to on a daily basis be responsible for where we lie on that spectrum, that's the thing that's gonna define our responsibility for justice. I wanna thank you for having me here today and I, I hope that there's something in my talk that you found uh, helpful to you in your journey and taking the next step. And I'm truly humbled to be here, thank you so much.